God's Word this morning, I'm turning once more to Matthew. We'll conclude chapter 25 of Matthew today. I'm choosing not to speak on the parable of the talents, which is a parable in this chapter, not because it certainly doesn't have value, it does have value, but I'm choosing to close this consideration of the Olivet Discourse with this message today as we look at the last part of Matthew 25. 26, I'm sorry. 25. Let's stay with 25. Get it right here. You know, it says 26 at the top of the page because 26 starts at the very bottom. Chapter 25, verse 31 is where I'm going to read for you. And we look at this last section, very solemn to be sure, and yet something that's full of wonderful blessing in the light of what Christ has done. Listen to God's Word. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you looked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When? Did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the Word of God. Father, will you help us to take with all seriousness these things that are most solemn, and yet at the same time to see in them the great joy 
of what you are working out for those who put trust in you. Help us in this, for Jesus' sake. Amen. On most Sundays, we confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed that say this, Christ ascended into heaven, and from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe the question this morning is whether you completely believe that which you commonly confess every week. There's a modern proverb that tells people there's nothing more certain than death and taxes. Well, that may seem to be true, but it really isn't. We have medical cures that many times can delay at least the onset of death. And there are both legal and illegal ways to evade taxes. But there is one reality that no person will delay or escape in any sense whatsoever, and that is the judgment of the one true and living God. In a parallel passage, Hebrews 9, 27, we read, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, even so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he shall appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That, of course, is what we've read about here at the end of Matthew 25 this morning. This concluding section of what we call the Olivet Discourse, or the Sermon from the Mount of Olives. The last long sermon preceding the cross. We've looked at it now for six weeks and seen how it's been full of compelling prophecy that ends with this last judgment at the historic throne of Christ as king when he returns. Here and in other parallel passages to it, we have the Bible's decisive plan for all of humanity. Now, Matthew 24 and 25 predicted that Jerusalem and its temple would be ruined because of human unbelief so prevalent in that nation. And indeed, that part of the prophecy already has come true and gives us that much more reason to believe that the one who predicted that within a single generation knows about this historic climax that will come for individuals and nations as well who oppose the Son of God. If you caught the clear principle or thread running through several parables told from the end of chapter 24 into the beginning of and middle of chapter 25, there are a string of small and larger parables there where the, the theme in common is something of a long absent master and how people conduct themselves while he's gone. And those who conduct themselves in faith and in watchfulness and in trust in the one who is coming we see have a blessed end promised to them. But consistently those who are turned upon self who ignore the lordship of the master, who give mere lip service to trusting in him, will meet 
some kind of a disastrous end. Again, another parallel is Paul speaking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. He writes there that the day will come when those who, quote, do not know God will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord on the day that he comes to be glorified with his holy people and marveled at, marveled at by all who believe. Now let's face it, there are thousands and even millions of people in our world who openly scoff at a scheme like this for the end of history. They would say, how ridiculous. You really believe that the Son of God will somehow come and be visible to everyone on the earth at the same time, and that He will dispose of human beings for an eternal destiny in some way as told here? They laugh. If not openly, they hold their hands to their mouths and scoff behind their hand. And you know, I found that in our society, even among many who are nominal members of the church or who claim some knowledge of Christ, there's a new reality these days that it seems as I look around and read obituaries and witness what is said at many funerals, it's not really that essential anymore that you believe in Jesus Christ as the only way and truth and life to be justified before a holy God. That's not so essential anymore, at least so it seems, because as you, the obituaries say, <clears throat> and some of the preachers at the funerals say, we're not justified by unique grace through faith alone in Christ. We're justified just by dying. And if you die, and you're a good person, and people generally can think well of you, what else need there be? God will certainly be merciful, regardless of the way that you have scorned His Son and His gospel throughout your life. Well, this, of course, is not the New Testament gospel that's being propounded today. And here in this passage, we see that none other than Jesus Christ himself would emphatically disagree that all you need do to find eternal life is die. In fact, there will be those who will die in their bodies and then die in their souls without remedy. First of all, today, with our time shorter than usual, we want to learn from this text that the verdict of Christ, Christ the King at His throne, is that which will bring the greatest joy to saints who are expecting Him. Look here, it says, it's, it's reiterating that wonderful climax. Probably the climax of this sermon is chapter 24, verse 30, where for the first time you hear the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky and the nations of earth mourning and seeing the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and glory and then some things working out from that. Now again, that's reiterated in 25, 31. Here is the Son of Man in His glory, in regal splendor, as the greatest king of all kings. He gathers those, and the first thing that's said in this text is how he gathers those who look to him in faith, and he has something wonderful to say to them. 
Come, you blessed of my Father, take your inheritance. Come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Keep in mind, the last time the general public has seen Jesus in all of history up to this moment, the last time the broad general public saw him, he was dying on a cross. He was a criminal, covered with shame. Sweat and dirt and blood were all over him. He was writhing in pain that he could not control in a physical way. And people scoffed at him and cursed at him and rejected him as the lowest of the low people on the earth. And now we read, the next time the general public of humanity sees Christ They see him in terms of one word that that really beggars definition. In his glory. Glory, you see, is the way Christ exists right now. But we don't see it. He's not visible to our eyes. But this will be the moment when he is visible. In all the wonder of everything that he is. And it would seem if we tried to understand what glory means, it would be like looking To look upon him would be like looking without flinching or turning your eye away from the very noonday sun itself. His brilliance and the wonder of him will be too great for you to fully take it in. You will have to turn your eyes from the brilliance that you will see. The commentators point out a key word that Jesus will speak to his own people here. There's a verb given of invitation for his people, and there's another verb for the unbeliever. But the verb for his people is, come. Come, you blessed ones. You see, with one word, the great shepherd knows how to invite those who already belong to him, how to summon them, how to summon them in such a powerful way that many of them who for centuries in in any physical manner have have been scattered dust. The molecules that were their bodies are dust on this earth. No form left of them. He will summon them with this word of power. Come to me. And the Scripture tells us that that is a word that will raise the dead. People who for centuries in their physical form once more have slept, we say, in Christ They are gone from us as far as walking about on this earth, but they will be reformed and brought before him and swept into this fellowship of his presence. Not a thousand, not ten thousand, but millions on millions out of every nation and every tribe speaking every language and praising him in every possible tongue as they come. You see, This ingathering, this response to Christ's invitation to come is actually the one judicial process that a Christian is going to experience. We are not going to stand before this judge and stand there sweating for hours, you know, with beads of anxiety and sweat on our foreheads. How will it come out? What will he say about me? We who are His already in Christ are simply going to be summoned with, come, come beside me, come to my right hand, 
Come where you belong. And all you have to do is come because your sin has already been punished and your guilt has already been taken as this very one, the judge, shed his blood for it on the cross. We read these words here. They're blessed. They're beautiful words when he says, Inherit a kingdom prepared for you from creation. Here's that truth from Scripture that people don't, you know, they think I look for it and find it all kinds of places it doesn't belong. But here's the doctrine of election. We're no afterthought with God. He was forming his people before Adam and Eve were on this earth. He understood what people would stand beside him in that great day. And he's been about the business ever since of forming that people and knowing that people by name, knowing the people who would wear on their heads the crown of eternal life before even one head was formed that would wear it. Isn't that wonderful? God knows his people. We're no afterthought with him. And then he will have to judge. He will have to separate the people he beckons to himself from all others. I remember many years ago when I was a boy helping out on my grandfather's farm, and one of the tasks that was given to me that was a boy-sized task was helping to size the eggs that my grandfather sold by the many, many dozens and baskets full at hundreds of chickens. And you would do that with a fascinating contraption. Uh, I don't even know what it was called, but some of you who have a farming background have seen the, the machine. This was in the 1950s that was used to size eggs into small, medium, large, extra large. You carefully put the eggs in a trough, gently, not breaking them, and they rolled down this trough, and they went over a series of little scales. And the, the, once the first scale they passed, of course, was set for only the heaviest eggs would trip it. The extra large eggs would trip that scale, and they would go down a side trough. And, and then the large, and then the medium, and then the small, and so on. And, and the eggs would be separated out. Judgment always means separation. It always means drawing a distinction between things. But in our text, it's not eggs that are being separated. It's something far more fragile, something far more precious Human souls who are known to Christ, whose all-knowing mind knows where each one belongs. And in a sense, you could say each one, by his own weight, goes to his place. Because those who have on them the weight of their own sins cannot come to the right hand of Jesus. It's significant, too, that it says he, be- he beckons us to his right hand. You may realize that that, of course, is always understood in antiquity. The right hand is the place where the king's first advisor sits or the prince of the kingdom. The most favored person is at the right hand. It's a place for favored children who are going to be heirs of everything that the king has. And you know what's wonderful? Even though we await that day to be gathered to that place, We are in that place right now. The Scripture says children of God in Christ already are seated in the heavenly places at His right hand. So that's just a revealing of our position, the position we already have. 
Well, much more could be said about the verdict of Christ and its joy for expectant saints. But know for now that there's no fear in this. There's no anxiety in this for the one who belongs to Christ. There's only safety and fellowship and worship and wondering joy. And now secondly, I want you to look quickly at the evidence that Christ will judge upon or the basis, you could say, for his divine judgment, and that is, surprisingly perhaps to you, works. But they are works that only faith can produce. Now, Christians and non-Christians in this world don't look so different. They walk down the street together. They work in the same offices and go to the same schools. And, and even we don't always realize who are the believers. Sometimes we, we come to know over time who the believers are around us. But even then, sometimes we're fooled. And there are those who claim to be believers who really are not. But we're told here that our God, through actions that we take and perform, can actually understand in this world who his people are. Through outward works that are done and where only faith in Christ could have produced those works. Let me explain that. You see, there's a popular wrong interpretation of this passage. There are those who who sort of pounce on this passage and say, aha, aha, here we see all you have to do in this world is be a good and philanthropic person, and you're taken care of. All you have to do is give your money to the poor, you know, support the United Way, send all your old furniture and clothes to Water Street Mission, make sure that that you are truly a generous person who doesn't look away in a haughty fashion from the needy, And that's all God requires. And so out of this passage, some have taught a mere social ethic of salvation that is gained by taking care of the poor. Well, the problem with that, as I think many of you would know, is that it would stand in contradiction to the entire gospel of God's grace through faith, which says, by grace are we saved, through faith, and that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man shall. How do we reconcile these? It really isn't that hard. You see, Matthew 25 is not teaching simply taking care of the world's poor in a mass fashion. It's not saying it's, it's, a, it's determined by what percentage of your budget you give to charity. And the key is this. Jesus is talking about taking care of rather particular people in this passage, if you would read it carefully. It is the least of these, my brothers, who he's talking about. If this intends to mean the general public without distinction, all poor without distinction, then it would be the only place in the New Testament that Jesus refers to humanity in a broadcast way as my brothers. It seems very clear that he's talking about particular persons here. He's saying that I can recognize those who are mine because they take care of the others who are mine who are in need. They see my disciples going about destitute and in need of support as they preach the gospel. They see my witnesses in prison. They see fellow believers sick and in physical need or financial need, and they recognize, here are Christ's people. I must care for them, for in them dwells the same Spirit of Christ who has brought salvation to me. 
And so he's saying that when you care for his people, the least of these, his brothers, you're actually helping him. Because it is Christ who is in these people of his who are being helped by your charity. Now, that in no way says that you should stop before giving aid to someone and say, what is your creed? I have to find out whether I can donate to feed you because if you're a Muslim, I can't do it. Not at all. It certainly doesn't say that. But it is saying that when God's brothers and sisters and children care for the others of his children, especially those in need of mercy and care and support and encouragement and physical gifts, they're giving as to Christ, the same Lord who inhabits both of them. So Matthew 25 here seems to say, and not contradict at all, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ. But yet it says that he will judge us by works that are only motivated by his grace at work in us. Works that are the fruit outworking from the root of faith. Now thirdly, the end of Matthew 25 informs us this morning that just as the verdict of Christ will bring amazed joy and wonderment and worship from his people, it will bring shocked dismay to the lost. I've been at a few surprise, you know, we have surprise parties and everybody whispers, don't tell them, don't tell them. You know, it's going to be a surprise. How many times have you been in one of those or you've even been the one who was supposed to be surprised and you got tipped off? The cat got out of the bag. But you politely came to the party and you acted surprised. Oh, it was nice when all your friends jumped out and started singing happy birthday to you. Well, let me tell you, the most genuine of those kind of surprises that has ever happened does not compare, apparently, to the surprise of some who have been good people on this earth. They've been benevolent. They have helped the poor in in general ways. They've tried to lead moral lives. But verse 44 says that the returning Christ is going to decisively Send away from himself. He's going to say, remember he said, come to the believers. Now he says, depart, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Is there a harder sentence than that in the whole Bible? Depart, just as Jesus Christ. Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is not, you know, a nice text that you take to preach on to make people happy. It's not a happy text. It's a stunning text. And it's a text that tells us there are going to be people who will be absolutely astounded by being told this because they thought of themselves as good people. And they expected some kind of a reward. We don't have time today, and I don't have the desire, humanly speaking, but we also don't have the time to try to develop a doctrine of hell out of this passage, but it has to be mentioned. You would notice, of course, that here's one of those mentions, and there are a number of them in Matthew where Jesus equates 
the eternal existence of the lost with fire. Now, fire is a symbol in the Bible. As far as it tells us anything about eternity for those without Christ, it should be put together with the words eternal punishment in verse 46. And yet, I don't think we should imagine that we have some kind of a complete picture drawn for us of the reality of eternal hell. We have an allusion to it. We have symbols of it. We have an indirect speaking about it. And some will always want to say this. They say, oh, well, you know, don't, don't think there's really flames. Well, it doesn't really matter if there are really flames. I want to tell you this. If the Son of God, whose tongue is the most sacred vessel of truth in all the world, uses fire as the way to picture eternity apart from knowing him, then you can believe that that symbol represents a literal experience that is infinitely worse than anything you can imagine by standing on red-hot coals. And what can be worse than having the true Savior of the world say to you, not come, not come, you blessed, depart, go away. Remember the bridegroom in the parable last week who was inside the door and the bridesmaids came? They thought, well, we're late, but we can surely get in. And the bridegroom said, I don't know you. And I don't intend to unlock the door. It's very clear in the Gospel of Matthew that there is no bribing or deceiving this judge. And there is no escape from his verdict, either for blessing or for absolute eternal dismay. Now, let me close with this reminder. If we turn the page in your Bible to chapter 26, you're going to see that immediately after this sermon, we have unfolded for us the events that took Jesus to the cross. Chapter 26 includes the Lord's Supper and Peter's denial and the arrest and the Sanhedrin trial, and 27 includes the cross itself. So here's, here's this last long sermon in which Jesus has said, I will come and be seen on the earth as the judge of everyone. And then what is the next thing that he did? This is important. The next thing that he did was with great deliberation and obedience to his Father, go to a cross and take on himself the wrath of divine judgment for all who would believe in his name. He completed the action of becoming the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. And it is for that reason that he, Jesus Christ, is entitled to come one day as judge. He is entitled to be the good shepherd who will separate his sheep out because he laid his life down for them. And the purpose of this last regal coming of his in glory is going to be so that reality will be demonstrated and you will see visibly the victory that he won over death and hell. You will see, and I beg you before God by faith, will you be one who hears him say, come, be at my right hand, inherit what I've prepared for you. And I beg you, don't be one 
who has to hear him say, go away, depart. I have no place for you. I don't know you. You would not receive. You persistently refused. You see, those who he sends away have no basis of complaint. They will not be able to say, Lord, you're being unfair. Not at all. Because they, all their lives, will have refused what he offered them. And they will receive exactly what their arrogant free wills demanded that they should have. Christian, your judge is going to be the Savior whose arms are spread open wide to his people. The one who shed his own blood of atonement so that your sin was dealt with. God's wrath was taken away. That's why there's no great anxiety for you at that judgment bar. It's already been done. And the appeal to you is the appeal of the words of God in Psalm 2. Will you do this today? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. Kiss the son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Father, we come to this table. And the things we visibly celebrate here in symbol just begin to touch the realities of what you did. What your son offered and how he transacted judgment so that when we face him at last, our hearts will be filled only with wonderment and pleasure and ecstasy. But in solemn thanks, we come to this table. I pray that you give us true repentance and true faith that lodges in the person of this one our dying sacrifice, who will also be our judge. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.